And I'm gonna let you in on a little backstage secret. It'll tell you a little bit about how it's done. So I had been playing some Matt Lucas records on the show, and I thought, oh man, is this guy still around? What's what's the deal? So I Googled him, and I, he didn't he doesn't have his own website, but he, his presence is on on the web quite quite a bit. And I emailed him, and he telephoned me back the next morning at eight. You know, I probably emailed him late at night, and then eight o'clock the next morning called me. And this is something that very interesting that like older performers often do that. They uh, you send them an email and they call you, which is great. It's sweet, and uh, it's great to kind of talk to somebody and break the ice a little bit before the actual interview. So he said, "Yeah, I'd love to love to do it," and he was very very excited. And in the next few days, uh, we set a date, and he must have emailed me uh, a couple times. Right, sent me some songs, etc., uh, etc. Et so. I call him for the interview. We, we set the date, and I did some research. You know how it usually goes. If you're if you've listened before, you know how the, the interviews usually go here. So I had this long list of questions, and kind of they go in chronological chronological order. And I usually explain to the guest that I'm going to edit the interview. If it's you know some some of them are live, but if it's one recorded in advance, I explain that it's going to be edited, and uh, that I'm going to go chronologically and to try to stay not not move the 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 story ahead too quickly, you know, to sort of let me do that with the, the questions. Uh, and so he seemed very excited. Uh, and so I asked him the first question, which was about uh, his childhood uh, in, in a small town. And he he talked for about 10 minutes, and I was kind of going crazy. And I, uh, and I jumped in to try to redirect, and he kind of deflected and talked for another nine minutes. So we were at 19 minutes on one question and I was kind of didn't know what to do I was like well I can't use this this is just and and it really I I have to say it was coming out of pure excitement on his end you know he's 82 years old and he was just super excited so I kind of interrupted and I said you know Matt I'm so sorry but this is just not going to work you know this is supposed to be an interview not a not a monologue that would take you know four hours to answer all the questions I've got so we started again, and uh, we talked for about another hour or so. Uh, so what you have here is about a half hour that's edited down from that uh, hour, and I think it's great. Uh, he just has a lot of great stories, super fun, super excitement, super honest, uh, just the kind of guest I like, and I'm so glad I didn't give up on him. Or uh, you know, I'm thinking of a couple other DJs, a couple other guests I, I had on the program who... I did not air their interviews, and and maybe I should have just said to them, "Listen, this isn't working." So maybe I've learned a lesson here. Anyway, super nice guy, uh, and we're still in touch. He's emailed me a few times after we recorded this, and he's coming to New York in the spring. So maybe we'll get him on in person. Uh, that might happen. We'll see. Uh, anyway, interesting guy, super interesting guy, super nice guy, and uh, I think this turned out pretty well. Uh, WFMU.org slash Michael is the place for the archives and for the list of upcoming guests. Uh, once again, hope you enjoy this certainly interesting chat with the great Matt Lucas. All right, there is uh, some Matt Lucas music, and Matt Lucas joins us on the phone. Good morning, Matt Lucas. How are you? Good morning, Michael. I'm just fine. It's nice to be on your show. Well, it's great. Your music full of excitement, and I and I we have talked off the air a little bit, and I know you are like a human piece of dynamite. So uh, I'm excited to 
to have you on the show this morning. Uh, you were adopted, but you grew up, uh, you are born in Memphis, ended up growing up in a Missouri farming uh, town called Poplar Bluff. Uh, this is pre-rock and roll. Tell me what was life like for you as a kid? Well, uh, my parents that adopted me from, uh, from Memphis uh, had uh, a motion picture show in the town, which I grew up going to the movies, and uh, like most kids, I guess, and uh, I was just had such a, a, a wonderful time growing up with the great parents that I had, and uh, I was in that dream world of, uh, of being in, uh, in Poplar Bluff and thought, well, one of these days I'm going to be a musician, and I, when I st- started going to school, I, I went to Mark Twain School and as a, in, in grade school. I was playing maracas and clavies and uh, writing songs and singing and going to church singing. So I had a pretty fairly normal uh, growing up period there. Uh, it's interesting because your life has a lot of twists and turns in it. So from you're sort of describing the all-American childhood, but I, I guess there was another side to life in Poplar Bluff also that sort of was pulling on you as well. Well, I guess there was. I When I found out I was adopted, I was probably old enough to just start reading. And you know how, you know how it is when a kid, uh, when the parents are away, you rumble through their closets and stuff maybe to look for papers. And I found out that I was adopted. That really knocked me for a loop. And I asked my adopted folks about it. They said, yes, said it's true, but we love you. We chose you and we love you. And so it made me feel okay again. But for a while, I felt like I was really lost growing up. So you're listening to the radio. You're hearing music from all over. But what did your parents listen to music? Well, you know what? There was not much to do in that little town. And my folks would go to dri- go for drives in their car. And I'd be in the back seat. And they would be singing songs to each other. Songs like My Blue Heaven and uh, all the all the standards, all, uh, like what would be the great American songbook now, and they'd be singing to each other. They really loved each other. So I learned all those songs growing up, all those songs from the 30s and 40s, and uh, I was just lucky to have such loving parents growing up. So it turned me on to the music. Then, of course, I listened to all the different radio stations, and there wasn't much happening around there except for hillbilly music, which was the most popular music, and I, I wasn't crazy about it. But I love jazz because I listened to it on the radio, and I wanted to be a drummer. So, you, so you, you learn in school some drums, and you're playing around town and stuff. Uh, but you get into some trouble, and I and I read that you chose to be. You, this is your words: chose to be a wild and crazy kid, uh, and you end up spending 14 months in the reformatory after you guys, uh, you and some friends, stole a cement mixer truck to run away from home. So, how did you pick a cement mixer truck? Seems like maybe not the best choice. No, it wasn't the the. the the best choice, but the, I just wanted to get out of that town so bad. And uh, a couple of friends of mine, a doctor's son and another buddy, we got in there, and they wanted to run away too. We wanted to run away from Saint, to St. Louis. So we got in that cement mixer truck, and we drove up Highway 67. And, of course, the highway patrol stopped us and uh, put us in jail and uh, took us back to uh, to Papa Bluff and uh, put me on uh, probation and called me a juvenile delinquent. Sounds like you were kind of watching your step, but it seems like you had already sort of gotten this brand of bad guy, and and just folks didn't like you associating with different races. They were suspicious of your musical taste, and and basically the law was giving you a hard time. Uh, is that is, was that normal for that 
part of the world? I think it it, it could have been because I was a, a real minority uh, liking uh, the black music that I liked and liking uh, the big bands and the jazz groups, uh, especially for my age. Most people like the country music or the hillbilly music, as it was called back then. So I was I was more into the uh, the the drums of Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and the Benny Goodman uh, band and stuff like that. That was uh, sort of a downfall for me with uh, most of the kids because uh, they couldn't understand why I liked that music. Mm. So eventually, I think really to just escape going back to reform school or something, you end up uh, moving to L.A. Is that right? What age were you? I was, uh, it was 1953, and I'm 82 years old now, so uh, I was a teen. Yeah. And uh, uh, as I say, as a kid, uh, I was old enough to have a car, and I uh, got my 1937 Plymouth and took two buddies with me, and uh, we, we had about 40 bucks apiece. Gasoline was like 19 cents a gallon. We drove nonstop to L.A., and I thought, man, Hollywood, here I come. I'm going to make the big time. I'm going to be, Matt Lucas is going to be a movie star. Didn't quite work out that way. Huh. So, um, well, I mean, Hollywood 1953, once again, it's pre-rock and roll time. What did you do to try to break into show business? I mean, what does a kid from Missouri just pull up in his car, and what, what's the first step? Well, I'd heard of, of Central Casting, which is like a booking agent, and uh, only for the movies. So uh, I went to Central Casting. Of course, I didn't have any 8x10 pictures or anything like that. I just thought there was movie stars, and I, I was so dumb. I thought, hey, man, I'm going to get discovered, and, uh, and uh, I'll be a movie star in Hollywood. And drove all the way. When we got the first day we got into L.A., drove all the way to the Pacific Ocean looking for Los Angeles. And... It was so crazy. We parked the car in Beverly Hills and, uh, and saw this place that I'd seen in the movies called the Brown Derby, a very famous uh, restaurant nightclub at the time. I peeped through one of the windows, and there was Betty Davis. I thought, wow, Betty Davis. When Betty Davis comes out, I'm going to hit on Betty Davis. <laughs> she will, and she will get me in the movies. That's how wild and dumb and crazy I was, Michael. <laughs> uh, I mean, you did end up playing some music in, in L.A. Did, now, I, I saw on the Internet that you played some sessions in L.A., but it seems like some of that information may not be correct. Did you play sessions uh, in L.A., R&B sessions? No, I didn't play on sessions, but I, I, uh, I met a lot of, of the people, of, of my idols at the time. I met uh, Jerry Mulligan. I met Chet Baker. I met uh, Chico Hamilton. But I would jam with a lot of the, of the jazz groups and the blues groups. I, uh, I got to play drums with Dinah Washington and a very famous jazz trombone player, Jack Teagarden. And uh, at the time, I was also going back and forth out to Culver City, you know, which was MGM Studios, and which I thought was heaven. It was the biggest place in the world. Yeah, so why were you going to MGM? Well, because it was the biggest. I thought, well, man, this is, you know, if I'm going to try to make it in the movies, I may as well try to make it, make it out there. So, so you were just hanging around MGM trying to get work, or you were? Yeah, I was trying to get on as as an extra or anything, and uh, and uh, I just couldn't. I got a job as a, as a model uh, at a modeling agency, and uh, so I did that. And I met a lot of people in show business, but just could not could not crack the gates of Hollywood. 
the music thing was secondary because I wanted to be a movie star. Ah, gotcha. Okay, I, I didn't. I, I I thought you were going there for music. So you really thought you'd be music, movie star. So eventually, you you kind of I guess you tap out and you go back uh, to St. Louis where you're playing drums mostly in strip clubs. Is that right? Yeah, I went back and uh, from L.A. and uh, moved up to St. Louis and started playing with rockabilly bands and then jazz bands because uh, rockabilly was really starting to uh, to take hold. And uh, I was so bored with that music that I, 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 then I started playing with uh, with the usually trios like a B3 Hammond organ and uh, I'd play drums, have a bass player like a quartet and a tenor sax player. So working mostly strip joints, which were mostly uh, 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 clubs uh, where they had uh, strippers, no dancing. It was a wild place back then, the 50s, uh, uh, late 50s in St. Louis, uh, selling drugs over the bar. Uh, I don't mean heroin, but like benzedrine tablets and dexedrine, uh, stuff like that. Uh, You could buy a water glass, sell a half pint of whiskey. That was a dollar if you were a musician. It was a wild, crazy place. Yeah, and rock and roll was just just starting to happen. I guess I, could, I should say rockabilly, not rock and roll. Rhythm and blues was big, but St. Louis was a was a wild, crazy place. Even East was was worse. Tell me about this place called Bar the Bar X. It's a kind of a notorious place, right? One of the very earliest of the rock and rollers, a good, very dear friend of mine. In fact, he's still one of my best buddies. His, his name was Narvel Feltz. And that was his real name, by the way. And he was uh, born in Arkansas, but raised in a little town not far from Papa Bluff. He offered me a job. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to take it because it paid big money. It was $125 a week. And to me, that was a fortune, you know. So I gave my notice at the nightclub on my last night there in St. Louis, at packing my drums. And uh, a guy came up to me. He said, how would you like to come to Chicago? I said, well, man, I can't do that because I'm going to work with a rockabilly rock and roll band down in southern Missouri. He said, well, I have a nightclub in Calumet City in South Chicago. He said, I'll make you a star. I said, really? Well, I said, I gave my word. He said, well, I'll pay you $250 a week. $250 a week? I freaked, man. I thought that was crazy, but I didn't believe him. Come to think about it, I did have one more set. So I went back and played the last set, and I, I asked the bartender, I said, you know who that guy is? I said, yeah, that guy is Johnny Luciano. I said, he's got clubs all over the Chicago area. He said, you can make a lot of money with that guy. And I noticed when I was put, taking my drums out, the guy came up to me again, and he took three $100 bills, and he ripped them in two. And he <laughs> gave half, and he said, this will be your pay at the end of the week. He said... You'll love it. Said so there's women galore. He said I'll have you a place to stay. And he said he knew I liked Gene Krupa. He said I'm going to make you the singing Gene Krupa. I said, Oh my God. He said, What are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to call Norval Phelps and tell him I'm going to Chicago. Yeah. So was life? I mean, was it just women and Ben Tadreen and uh, and crazy mobster characters? I mean, was that what it was like there? Well, I tell you, uh, I went up the, it's mostly a brick road up to uh, Chicago. When I got there, uh, at, the, at the end of State Street was Hammond, Indiana. All these bars were all wild, crazy places to where, uh, uh, we would, 
we would go uh, go play the band we'd play from nine o'clock at night till sometimes five o'clock in the morning and they had b-girls and uh, that would be an example of how crazy these places were a b-girl have you heard that term before michael i don't think so well it's a it's a usually a very lovely gal that was in the club uh, this club had about 15 of them and as soon as the customer would come in She'd go over and sit down next to the customer and say, hi, how are you, blah, blah, blah. And the customer would buy her a drink. Well, the customer would buy her a drink, okay, but when the drink came, it would be tea or cola, and it had a swizzle stick in it, the, the stick that you mix the drinks with. Well, at the end of the night, she'd have all these swizzle sticks, and that's how she made her money from the customers. Then they also sold the benzodrine tablets behind the bar, and I'm up there watching all this. There was no dancing. It was just I'm up there behind the bar singing with the guys in the band, and the guys in the band were all speed freaks. It was, man, it was pretty crazy. I thought, well, you know, I, I got to get out of here. My boss told me, he said, well, Matt, he said, you're going to be a big time incident. But finally, I heard a shot one day playing a matinee. Uh, it sounded like a car backfiring, and it was break time. So I went out. I was smoking cigarettes at the time. I went out to the club, and there was a black man laying in the street. And I ran inside. I said, someone better call the police. Call the police. There's a man. There's a man better hurt out here. He's been shot. I said, don't worry about that. It says, it's Michael O'Bannon's birthday. I said, he always shoots a colored person on his birthday. So you knew you had to get out of there. Yeah, that's an unbelievable. Uh, that's crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. So I called my buddy Narvel Fels and went to work with them. And he had a deal with Mercury Records in Chicago. And so I started playing drums with him and went on the road playing different towns every night all over, all one-nighters. We never played the same town twice. But then later on, a friend of ours, Conway Twitty, who was Harold Jenkins at the time, said, boys, you need to come to Canada. So uh, we went to Canada, and uh, well, the first place we played in Canada was uh, London, Ontario, and we had lineups for like two blocks. This was unbelievable. And it was so wild and crazy. We, here we could play the same place the same nightclub, six nights a week, and even a matinee on the weekend. It was fantastic. No one was getting beat up. They wasn't throwing chairs at each other like they were down in Arkansas and some of the other, some of the other places. It was, it was wonderful. So uh, I thought, man, this is great. You know, I really like this Canada. This is great. So I stayed there for quite some time. And uh, then uh, I go back down to Memphis, and, of course, Narva was recording. We were recording uh, at Roland James' studio. Roland James, a very famous musician that uh, played on all the early Sun records for Sam Phillips. So I, I made up this song. I got the idea from a Hank Snow song, uh, the Hank Snow, I'm Moving On. And I, w I made up this song, and it went, Why did it, baby? Why, shake it for your daddy. I'm going to ride that thing tonight. And, uh, you know, playing that and with a he real heavy drum beat, and that's with Marvel. We just had a trio at that time. And people would stampede the dance floor when they heard that song. And uh, so in the studio one day in Memphis, Marvel asked Roland James, he said, why don't you have Matt sing, uh, sing this song that he's having so much fun with called I'm Moving On. He said, okay. So I cut it. Everyone looked at each other. And uh, Roland says, I'm going to put that record out. So I think we can do something with that record. So he put it out. Uh, yeah, it came out locally, and then I think it got picked up by Smash, which is part of Mercury, and it became a pretty big hit. I mean, was that tip, I mean, the energy on that record and the, the way that you were kind of, you know, the delivery and the whole 
catness, the cool catness of it. Was that typical of what you were like live back in in 1963? Yeah, I was a wild man. I uh, like I say, Norval was a country rockabilly guy. Uh, great talent, but he just wasn't into my music. We'd be going to work somewhere in Arkansas or something, and uh, Norval would put on the Grand Ole Opry or uh, one of the country radio shows, usually Grand Ole Opry, and I would take the dial and switch it over to WLAC, which was an all-black R&B station in Nashville with uh, a lot of my favorite disc jockeys like John R. and uh, Hoss Allen and, and people like that. So we had the mixture of the country and uh, the rhythm and blues thing going. And uh, I, was, I was just sort of, I always leaned toward that boogie-woogie, black jazz music. Yeah, well, it, it's a very infectious uh, sort of a, sort of a mixture. Narvel would go on to have sort of, sort of more mellow hits in, in the 70s. He would sort of kind of get, uh, it'd take a while for him, which is kind of, uh, kind of interesting. You end up recording some follow-ups to that uh, that have a similar kind of crazy groove to them, I think, like Ooby Dooby, which was on Smash, and then uh, Maybelline and Turn On Your Love Light on Dot Records. How'd you get signed to Dot? Well, I'll start with Ooby Dooby. Uh, I used to play drums with Roy Orbison, and because I was doing shows with Roy Orbison and Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, a lot of the other Bill Black and uh, a lot of the Ace Cannon and a lot of the other acts from uh, from the Memphis area, and uh, so I I thought, well, Ruby Doobie, you know, since I'm moving on was uh, was such a big record. I'm moving on is a very weird record because no one would play it as they told me I sounded too black. I know this may sound funny now, and that was 1962. So I'd go to the white, they had white radio stations and black radio stations back then. So I go to the white station and said, I love music, but I can't play it. You sound, it's too wild and crazy. I didn't see anything wild and crazy about it. So finally, I got so tired of hearing that. I went to WDIA, which the, 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 the radio station at the time was called The Voice of the American Negro. And my dear friend, Rufus Thomas, who had Walking the Dog and a lot of hits, his daughter was Carla Thomas. He said, Matt, how come your own people won't play your music. I said, Rufus, I'm not going to lie to you. They said I sound too much too black. He said, give me the record. So I gave him the record. He put it on the turntable. He said, baby, you got a hit, man. You got some soul, baby. And he said, I'm going to play this record and make it a hit. So he played the record so much that it became a hit in Memphis off of black radio. During this time, was your lifestyle uh, wild and crazy, or did you have it under control? No, I was going going pretty wild and crazy. I was drinking a lot. I, I'd always been uh, always been a pretty wild, crazy drinker uh, back then. Uh, the drugs was uh, I didn't mess with drugs very much. Uh, once in a while, you know, the first the first drug I messed with was was a tranquilizer back in the fifties called Meltdown. And uh, at that time, the doctors were prescribing Meltdown to mostly housewives. Uh, going through change of life and everything. Then they they would also prescribe dexedrine, dexamel, benzedrine to housewives also, so they could do a lot of housework. Well, <laughs> man, in other words, it was like speed freaks. Yeah, yeah, know? crazy. So here I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking those pills, but I'm drinking. And my drinking habit at that time was really starting to get out of hand. I was drinking like uh, a fifth a night of scotch, then I got up to a 40-ounce a night of Texas, 40 ounces a night for a four-hour gig. So I was drinking a lot. I was never on my 
you know, on my kneecaps or anything, running around drunk. I was just a just a wrong crazy guy. It didn't slow me down any at all. And of course, uh, I was drinking so much that the only time that I acted strange was when I wasn't drinking. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's 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 you're down in it at that point. Uh, you had another great hit a few years later, the Motor City Twine, which has kind of now become a a real collectible Northern Soul record. But music was sort of changing, you know, the British invasion and hippie music and that kind of stuff, and kind of became, I think, hard hard for guys like you to. Uh, you know, the music industry was just looking at all these younger, new bands. Uh, so I know that you laid low for part of the 70s, although you did end up making a, uh, and this is not quite in, in, in chronological order, and, and you did end up making one disco record that was a sort of uh, a hit in Canada. I think you moved to Canada, then you relocated to Florida, and then in 1975, am I right, you had a heart attack after all this kind of lifestyle choices? Yeah, I did, and, uh, you know, earlier on, uh, like I say, when I was with Marvel in Canada, I thought this would be great. I met a wonderful guy, uh, an, an agent that had, like, back then, the agents had, like, 130, 140 rooms where you could work seven nights a week, uh, and I met this guy, Harold Cutlitz, who just passed away uh, two years ago at 99 years old. He had Ronnie Hawkins, he had myself, and uh, you know, he had Louis Armstrong in Canada. He had all these great rooms, jazz rooms, rock and roll rooms and everything, I met another guy uh, that was editor of Downbeat Magazine. His name was Gene Lees. And uh, so he had a label in Canada, so I signed with him. That was on Kanata Records. And I had uh, four hit records in Canada with him. But in the meantime, I would still go down to Detroit and uh, because I'd met a guy by the name of Ollie McLaughlin. And I'd met him when I had a number one record in Detroit. I'm moving on. Well, Ollie says, Matt, he says, I'm going to take you out of these dives. And he said... I'm going to get take you off the Chitlin circuit and put you in some, some big-time clubs. He said, I can cut a hit on you. I love your blues. I love the way you sang. Sign a deal with me. I did. Ollie told me, look, man, I want you to walk walk around downtown, get the feel of the city, and write me a song about Detroit. So I wrote the song, The Motor City Twine. Originally, it was it was just the Motor City Blues, but a group called Alvin Cash and the Crawlers had a big record called Twine Time. Uh, they were from Chicago. So he said, let's, let's put Twine on that song. I said, okay. So the words were, in the Motor City, there's a thing they do. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Anyway, I'm getting carried away again, Michael. Sorry. <laughs> so I went back to Canada and uh, stayed up there until 1975. And uh, I've just got... I had an agent call me one day in Canada. He said, well, Matt, he says, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, the guy says, I'd, I got an opening for you down here, Matt. Would you like to come down here? I said, I don't know. I said, what's the temperature? He said, it's 82 degrees. It was about 20 below zero in Toronto. I said, I'll be there. So I left Canada in 1975. I had a number one disco hit in Canada at the time uh, called You Gotta Love. Here I had a disco hit in Canada, Michael, and I'm working in clubs, and that's the only disco song I know because all the rest of the stuff I'm doing, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lewis, Fast Domino, Little Richard. So you can imagine I'm bombing out because I, I didn't like the disco scene. So I come back to, to uh, I move down to Florida and go on the road with my little band, looking working in Louisiana and these places, and then I had a really wonderful break come to me. I, I got a, a gig at the... Uh, most beautiful hotel in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. And I stayed down there for two years. 
and then uh, came back to the States. So here I am, 82 years old, enjoying life, man, uh, like crazy. I got a, you know, I've been married seven times, man. My my wife now, I've been married for over 30 years, and I've married the most wonderful guy of all the women I've been through. I fell in love with a gal, my boss's secretary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What's your wife's name? Her name is Barbara, and she's the sweetest thing, man, I tell you. So you've been married to Barbara for 30 years, married seven times. I didn't realize that. I was married to two at once, but it wasn't my idea. It was a shotgun wedding, and that was in Arkansas. Wow. Uh, so you, you, I know that you played some. You played a lot of nightclubs and stuff. You played some cruise ships, and uh, I know, like you said, you're still making uh, records, and uh, you definitely have some international fame, which is amazing. That 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 kids all over the world are into you. Uh, Eighty two years old. There is. Do you still write songs? Do you play the drums every day? Constantly, mostly blues. I love the blues. I just I just can't shake the blues. And are you sober these days, Matt? Absolutely sober. Yeah, I did a complete 360. Uh, uh, you know, I've had a couple of heart attacks. And uh, the last one, about 16 months ago, I was in Hawaii. And I kept getting this wild burning in my throat. I thought, wow, what the hell's the matter with me? So uh, I was on a ship, and uh, we made it back to the ship. And when I got back uh, home to Florida, I went to my doctor. And he says, Matt, he says, uh, you better call your wife. I said, what's the matter? He said, you know, he just gave me an EKG. He said, you're a dead man walking, Matt. He said, I really don't think you're going to make it out of the office. He said, the ambulance is on the way. The crew's on the way. They're going to put you on a gurney, take you straight to the hospital. I couldn't believe it. You know, I said, well, I don't feel that bad. He said, I'm telling you, you're going to die. But, oh, my God. My wife, Barbara, came in. At the, in the meantime, the hospital, they took me down to the University of Florida in Gainesville, and uh, Checked me in. The next morning, I had a massive heart attack. Then, about a week later, after they stabilized me, I had a quintuplet bypass. And man, let me tell you, that knocks you for a loop. And my family came in. You know, I have the most wonderful kids. One thing I really regret with my craziness and my wildness and everything is uh, I have I have three wonderful kids. That I've, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't there. I was on the road all the time, chasing women, drinking, leading the, the jazz, rock and roll, blues lifestyle, and but you know what? Those kids still love me, and it means so much. And, and my wife has just been so good to me, and my buddies. I still got the same buddies, you know, and I still, I still have the same friends. There's not many of us left, you know. Narvel, I see Narvel a couple of weeks ago. I see Travis Wilmot. I talked to Ronnie Hawkins uh, a lot, and. Uh, Travis Wamick, James Burton. I still talk to a handful of the old guys. I'm about the oldest of all of them. Ronnie Hawkins is my age also. I have to get a big kick out of Ronnie, man. I says, he says, Matt, I can't, I can't chase these women like I used to. So there's two left to drag these oxygen bottles behind me. <laughs> He's something else. you got to do an interview on Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I should. Uh, it's just what a what a crazy life you had. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm glad that I'm still that I'm able to talk to you. That you're just alive and and here and sober. Uh, for a lot of guys, didn't didn't work out that way. So uh, crazy story, and and you actually survived, which is amazing. I, I think we're gonna play. I'm moving on. I think we have to end with that. Uh, anything else? Folks need to know about the recording of this or, or about the legacy of this. Or, you know, did you own the masters to this? Do you make any money when when folks uh, buy this record? 
Well, the only way I really made the money was working nightclubs. And I always had wonderful bands. Some of my musicians stayed with me 15 years because I paid very good money. And uh, But as far as I was concerned, it was the music uh, and I would, uh, and chasing women. So the Cadillacs, the booze, you know, that was it. My big break came when I, when I moved down here to Florida, and then I started to work on cruise ships. I was one of the first early guys to work cruise ships, and the only really true rock and roll blues act. This was, this was 70s, and there was no one. You know, they had the big bands for the old folks, but then here I am singing, you know, the Chuck Berry, the Fat Domino, all the, all the music that I grew up on, plus all those wonderful songs from the, from the 30s and 40s. So I fit right in the groove perfect of the cruise ship audience, and I, I still do cruises. And, uh, in fact, uh, Barbara and I, on October 18th, we're going out on a ship. But I'm just so lucky uh, working those ships. that are so good to me. I tell you, I've just had a wonderful life, man. And I, I do appreciate being on your show. It's not over yet, man. I want another hit record. Well, it's a completely crazy story, and I'm just glad you could share it with us today. Let's hear our moving on. Uh, Matt Lucas, thanks so much. Hey, man, I'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, Matt. God bless you. Bye-bye. Wind it up, baby. Oh, shake it for your daddy. I'm on a ride that train tonight. Goodbye. Big eight wheel rolling down the track. Me and your true loving daddy ain't gonna come back. I want the boot. I got the boot. Well, don't you hesitate when I'm motivated. I'm gonna move on. One of these days, son, it won't be long. You're gonna look for Matt Lucas. Matt Lucas be gone. I want the boot. I got the boot. You find much too high when you give in the eye. I want to move on. I got the boot. Take a throttle in hand And won't you move me right down to that good loving land I want to move I got to move Well, I'm on my way I'm going home to stay I'm going to move on I'm on a motorway, I gotta move on. Well, get yourself under control, I got to go, I wanna move on. Goodbye, baby.